chapter 20, we pick up at verse 16 to 35, and we're going back again. We've read some of these verses last week, and we're going to look at some more uh, applications here. And so we pick up with the conspiracy that was to kill Paul. So in verse 16, And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is that thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow into the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat or drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may settle on Paul, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter after this manner, Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And would I have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him farewell. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded, then took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was, and when he understood that he was of Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come, and he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. I think that's fascinating that he winds up in Herod's judgment hall. Herod had built that himself. Herod thought very highly of himself, and he built it, and it was very elaborate. And this is where Paul winds up. Here we see Paul's defense. Anybody remember the name of the captain? Who was the captain who was in charge here? Anyone? Talked about him over and over and over again last week. The captain's name is Claudius Lysias. So Claudius Lysias is the one that takes this over. And one of the big questions here this morning is, was he trying to save Paul because he loved Paul? And it was all about Paul, and it was all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was about all good things. Is that the objective here of Claudius Lysias? Very good. It wasn't. Well, who's the governor? What's the name of the governor? Anybody remember the name of the governor? 
There used to be a cartoon about a cat with his name years ago. I'll give you a hint. Felix, the cat, the wonderful, wonderful cat, remember? And so Felix, that's a way to remember. So the governor is Felix. And so as, we, as we're reading this, we're basically going up the chain of command of all those that are swarmed around Paul. And the irony of the whole situation, and then you can think of other times in the Bible where the Lord used wicked means or the Lord used people that literally hated him to do his work, to do his bidding. Here, Paul the Apostle right now is being defended by the Roman Empire. They have swarmed 470 javelin throwers, soldiers, horsemen, and very mighty men of war around him to defend him from being killed by his own people, the Jews. And here he is in the midst of a situation where last week we talked about he was in a position of literally, it says word for word in Scripture, he was going to be ripped to pieces. Arm by arm, leg by leg, and believe you me, they'd have done it. That would have been no problem leaving him lay. Look what he did to Stephen. And so these were conspirators. You could call them the first century, basically the first century uh, terrorists. And they were ready to go after Paul and rip him to shreds. And then something incredible happens here as we're going to look at it. A young man comes to stand up to save the apostle Paul. Who was this young man? Anybody remember? Yes, he has a nephew. Paul has family. Somehow, some way, he had a sister and he has a nephew that wound up in Jerusalem. How's that possible when Paul had left the Pharisaical order, probably was excommunicated from his church and his family? She may have very well been saved. He may have very well went to his sister and said, Hey, you need to get away from this Jewish cult and you need to, you need to follow Jesus Christ. And it's a very good chance that that's what happened. And that's why his nephew stood up Overheard this and tried to save his uncle. A young man comes to send, save Apostle Paul. He overhears a very clandestine plot to kill him. And this covert operation was done with an objective to fast until Paul is dead. And what that means is we will not drink. We will not eat. We will not do anything. of. And when, This is a real fast. It's not some little fast where you take one little thing out of your life that really is not a big deal and you say you fast. This is everything. This is they are not going to do anything until they kill Paul. Not eat, not drink, and they don't care how long it takes. They're, they're going to do everything they can to kill Paul the Apostle. And this is their objective. And it's not just one. It would have only taken one. Forty? What was the chances of Paul living through that? Forty people have declared they are going to murder Paul. You don't get out from under that. That's not something that's very easy to, to do. I mean, you've seen probably seen these cop shows and when these, the mafia guys go after somebody and they go put out a hit, they shoot somebody at a restaurant, you're done. There's not a whole lot you can do about it when you don't see it coming. And that's what they were trying to do. How many times in Scripture did the Lord use means that we can't see or nobody could see in order to save somebody? How many times? Well, how about King David when he was a little boy, basically? He was a teenager, and he basically saved Israel from a nine-foot beast who was mocking the Lord. And the Lord brought him out of nowhere. Remember that? There's been many other instances in that, and I think that's an incredible story. And yes, it is as true as the nose on your face. It is. And, and here, nobody sees this coming. 
You see the Roman Empire conspiring. You see the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are conspiring. These Jews get probably the order from the Sadducees because the Pharisees had just declared Paul was not an evil man. So it's probably part of the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees that told these 40 terrorists to go kill Paul, make life a lot easier. You go all the way back to, uh, remember John chapter 12, at the very end, or it was, yeah, maybe it was John 11. No, it was John 11, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, and what happens, Caiaphas says, we, the only way to fix the problem between the Pharisees and between the Roman Empire is we need to kill Jesus. We've got to do it. We've had it. He, wanted, he said he wanted to sacrifice himself for his people. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to expedite that. And we're going to go kill him. And so basically that's what's happening here. All we've got to do to fix this problem with this missionary journey of Paul the Apostle is kill him and eradicate him. That's all we have to do. Something happens. Remember Christ had spoken to Ananias all the way back in chapter 9. And he said, you will be ministering to Ananias, the public enemy number one, and that was Saul of Tarsus at the time. I have anointed him and have chosen him to bear witness to the Gentiles and the kings, and, he, and we are here. He is now testifying to Jews, Gentiles, lesser magistrates, and now upper echelon of the politics. And exactly what Christ says, Paul is right there. Paul, the Lord says, you're going to go to Rome. Little, little did Paul know that it would be in chains, but he's going to be on his, on his way to Rome in chains, and he is going to be literally standing before kings and governors, and he's going to be giving his testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there it's going to be recorded for us to read. We're going to, we're going to look at that and how important that is here in a little bit. Paul could have been pulled to pieces... We see the key verses where Luke records a one-on-one conversation. How We see how there was a one-on-one conversation, actually, where this, this nephew comes and he starts talking. He actually talks to Paul. He's able to go into the castle. Paul was not in jail yet. He's being basically arraigned, and he's able to go tell him what happens. And Paul says, you go to that captain and tell him. That's what you have to do. And we see that while all this is happening... There is Paul sleeping, and all of a sudden, who appears? Anybody remember? Out of nowhere. Who appears and talks to him? Back in chapter 18. Christ himself. Wait a minute. Christ is dead. He was, he was crucified, wasn't he? Where We don't see him physically appear anywhere here. He's not part of any of this. Physically standing there with Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't see the, the, this vision along the way. How does, Christ, how does Christ talk to Paul? Exactly. He did it from heaven through the Holy Spirit. I guess it's, I guess I'm one of, the reason I'm saying this is, as Christians, yeah, this is like easy for us. Yeah, we know he did it from the right hand of God. We know, and that's and kind of like we think about that. I don't think we should think of it like that. I think we should look at it as an incredible supernatural event where Jesus Christ has can, can he can pinpoint anybody at any given time and speak to them from the heavens any way, any means that he means, and that is incredible. 
Who has that kind of unlimited power to be able to do that and just appear in the middle of a Roman prison and speak to him where Paul's probably laying on straw, laying somewhere in some room, and he physically, audibly talks to him and says, be of good cheer. You're going to go to Rome. And this is a promise that he gives him. You will not die. You're not going to die until you see the part of this ministry, the next part of this ministry. And I want to go over this again because we went through it quickly. But what I think that's incredible about this, the thing you don't read, is this shows the, the just incredible, merciful forgiveness that Christ shows Paul, that Paul labored so hard in his heart over. He never forgot what happened to Stephen, holding the cloaks of those men. He never forgot the Christians that he persecuted. And at some point in his life, you see that he's so low, he calls himself a wretched man. Christ is here telling him, you're forgiven. Pastor. Right. And now we have the Bible given, we don't need those today. That's right. And uh, the Pentecostals will tell you, oh, we do all the same things they did back then, but no, we got the Bible today. Those were to confirm things and to show them things. That's, that's perfect, wonderfully said, because we go right back to John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning, and all things were created by Him, and nothing was made, it wasn't made by Him. He's the Logos. He's the Word. We have His Word. And we need to remember that. And here His Word not only appears to Paul, but we're still reading it 2,000 years later. The very words that Dr. Luke recorded and the Lord inspired to him. That's how incredible this is. We see forgiveness here. This is what we miss if we're not paying close attention to what Christ says here in this impossible situation. Forgiveness is all throughout Scripture. Can we forgive? Factually, here we see that Christ encourages Paul that he will not be martyred now, but he will speak in Rome. And we're now seeing firsthand that Christ has fully forgiven Saul. We see, we've, we, last week we spoke of the forgiveness of Israel, going back to Numbers 14, the forgiveness of the greatest king of Israel, and David in 2 Samuel 12, 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also put away, hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. You believe in Jesus Christ, you believe in His gospel, and you are saved by the grace of Christ, you are forgiven, and you will not die. You won't. You won't. You'll have a physical death, last very quickly, but you will not have a spiritual second death where you're burning in hell. That is a promise, and it's believing. Money can't buy that. God owns that. God has all the money anyway. It's, it's his to begin with. It's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved and repenting. Those were the first two sermons that John the Baptist and Christ gave. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the axe is laid at the root of the tree and we don't have time to wait. It's something that's, that's upon us. You never know when you're going to go. You need to be ready. Forgiveness is, there's forgiveness in miracles. Remember the man led down through the roof. We didn't, we didn't see this last week. Mark 2, 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Wasn't that beautiful? Remember that? Remember that incredible miracle? The house was filled. Look at the incredible nature of Christ's ministry at the time. You couldn't even get in. You had were standing room only if there was even that. 
And this man came up, his friends went on top of the roof, opened up the roof, and lowered him right in front of the face of Christ. Before he heals his legs, he says, Before thy sins be forgiven thee. What's more important? I don't like the statement where people say, I've heard this many times, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Oh no. Ask Johnny Erickson if that's true. She can't move. But she has everything because she has Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. That's what we should be saying. So Christ met with Paul and gave a wonderful encouragement for him to go ahead because he would later speak in Rome. And this is an incredible promise that carries through. Paul's pulled into the council. And what I think... I, I don't know, this is something that I just kind of, I, I kind of noticed and I like this. I, I really believe this, of course. I believe that the Romans at this point still believe that their fortresses in Antonio and in Antipatris are impenetrable. They seem to forget about what happened to Peter and John and Paul and Silas when they were in jail. They were penetrable by Christ. Remember the earthquake? Remember the Philippian jailer? There was nothing that, there, not, there was nothing that could protect them from Christ. Nothing. Those places are impen- there. They were penetrable by Christ. Forty Jews took a solemn oath. These Jews com- conspire to kill Paul. And Paul's nephews, the instrument of salvation for the life of Paul. That was the big question with Jonah. <laughs> with Jonah. What was, uh, I mean, I know it's different. It's not a, it's not a human being, but there was a, there's, there's been a lot of like uh, debate over whether the great fish with Jonah was an instrument of destruction for Jonah or an instrument of salvation. We all know that if it wasn't for that great fish, Jonah would have drowned to death when he was thrown into the waters. Well, here we see the instrument of salvation here for Paul in a physical nature is his nephew. And he, he's the instrument. He goes and he, he, he gets in between and he has the courage to go to Claudius Lysias. Paul tells him to and he tells him what's going on. And, what, what, and this is something that I think we need to look at. Paul couldn't have been in a more difficult spot in his life, and now you have to be thinking, even, even Christ comes to him and, and he encourages him, he has to be thinking up till then, what's going to happen? Where's the efficacy of this ministry? What am I going to do being stuck in a jail in Rome? How am I going to continue on? Is This is what my purpose-driven life was. You might think that maybe he was down about that. Well, this brings up an application in here. What do we do with the storms of our life? What do we do when things are bad? Do we go around and we just dwell in, in constant abject depression and just dwell in our sorrows and think about ourselves? I maintain that the best way out of it is helping other people. That's always a great way to lift yourself up. And that's what whole Paul's objective was, is to lift other people up. That was his whole objective. He was here giving the gospel and doing it for nothing when it comes to physical gain. He sees, Christ sees everything and can use means in our life that we cannot ordinarily see. But what I think is fascinating about this is I don't even believe even for one minute Paul even had a slightest, uh, even the slightest notion of what would come of this event. Look at the writings. Look at the translations. Look at the men that gave their lives, like Wycliffe and others, to translate the Bible and to get these stories out and to show the holy inspired Word of God. 
Look at how incredible that is. Look how Paul's missionary, he's on his third missionary journey, he swoops through, all of this is recorded, and it will eventually land in the Americas. And it will be the driving force behind the Puritans, the pilgrims, the colonists, and our churches today, where the truth comes from. Paul must be wondering now if there is any fruit at all of being banished at some point to the Antonian prison. Remember Luther in the castle? Remember remember he was translating scripture and how hard it was for him with Melanchthon? Could Paul have been asking, what is the point? What do I do? Do we get to that point in our lives? You know, I think of I think of the situation with John Calvin in Strasbourg. He called it his little congregation. In 1538, he was banished from Geneva. Does anybody remember that? Anybody hear that? He and Farrell and others were they were banished from Geneva, and there there his ministry was gone. He suffered from cold and hunger in the winter of 38 to 1538 to 39, and had to sell many of his books just to keep himself alive. His friend Louis, Louis du Tillet, who had tragically returned to the Church of Rome, offered to help but attached such conditions to his offer that Calvin declined it with thanks. And he asked, did he mean to convert me? Wrote Calvin to Farrell. And Swiss friends also offered help, but he preferred to battle on alone. But shortly after his arrival at Strasbourg, he called that church at Strasbourg his little church. That's amazing. His little church had 300 people. For us, that would be a mega church for us here. <laughs> but back then, 300 people was a little church. I mean, people took God seriously, real seriously back then. And you know, basically what I think is interesting is that he had a former colleague and friend, a blind preacher named Corralt, and he fully believed that that man was murdered. He didn't get out of Geneva quick enough. And this is what Calvin said at the time. I am so bowed down by the death of Crawl that I cannot set a limit to my anguish. It is not merely the usual sleeplessness I suffer from. My mind is chiefly burdened with that iniquitous deed which, if my suspicions are well founded, I must bring it to light. He believed that he was murdered by, his, by, that, by that wicked church. And he was in abject sorrow. Have you ever been there? Well, this is where Paul was many times. You read it in Corinthians. You read First and Second Corinthians. And you can read the abject sorrow he, 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 he lived in. 500 years later, Calvin's exposition and translations of his letters to Geneva and Stroudsburg, his sermons, his translation of the Psalms. Do you know for the Stroudsburg Psalms, he literally sat and took the Psalms and wrote songs and they sang the Psalms from his writings. And they're preserved today. <clears throat> they're still preserved. He called it his little congregation. Who would have thought that his faithfulness would continue on like it has today? I love what Charles Spurgeon says regarding the discouraging storms in our lives. And basically, I can kind of go to this and use this as application for the Sunday school class because you see what happens in the rest of the chapter. We've basically gone through it. We're going to look a little more at the legions and the army. But at this point, Paul's mouth is shut. And it will be until next chapter. Basically, you read for the rest all the way down to verse 35, you're reading basically the components and really what happens when you are arraigned and what happens to you by the Roman Empire and you're taken in. And we see how basically Paul is taken by the, the army men of the Roman Empire and then he's transferred at 9 p.m. to the horsemen and they take him to Antipatris, about 35 miles, 40 miles away. That's where they relocate him and that 
by the time they got to Caesarea near Antipatris, it was a lot calmer there. So they were able to just take the horsemen and, and it was easy. But getting out of there, they were still trying to get him out from under the 40 Jews that were trying to murder him. And here's what Spurgeon has to say. I mean, all this time here, Paul, and it was a hard, hard journey going from this prison to Antipatris and the foot soldiers. It was a very difficult walk. And basically, Paul's probably thinking to himself, what's going to happen? Well, here's what Spurgeon says in the times of these, these horrible times of trouble. He says, sing in trouble again because God loves to hear his people sing in the night. Sing in trouble again because God loves to hear his people sing in the night. At no times does God love his children singing so well and when he has hidden his face from them and they are all in darkness. Sing then, Christian, for singing pleases God. That's what Spurgeon said. Here's another quote. The more the wind rages, the more you feel that the anchor holds you. It is often so with us when the winds are out and the storms are raging. There is plenty of fear, but there is no danger. We may be much tossed, but we are quite safe, for we have an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which will not start. One blessed thing is that our hope has such a grip of us that we know it. In a vessel you feel the pull of the anchor, and the more the wind rages, the more you feel that the anchor holds you. Like the boy with his kite, the kite is up in the clouds where he cannot see it, but he knows it is there, for he feels its pull. So our good hope has gone up to heaven, and it is pulling and drawing us towards itself. And then he says, it is the bold Christian who can sing God's sonnets in the darkness. Songs in the night, too, prove that we have true courage. Many sing by day who are silent by night. They are afraid of thieves and robbers, but the Christian who sings in the night proves himself to be a courageous character. It is the bold Christian who can sing God's sonnets in the darkness. Storms in our lives. Well, let's think about storms. Where did we think about Christ in the storms? Remember the great tempest, Matthew. And that's the whole answer. That's what I was getting at. What was he doing in the back of the ship? He was sleeping. Didn't bother him. He's our hero. Christ is our defender. He's our savior. He's our God. And what is he doing? Because he has control over the winds and the seas. What did, the, what, did the, what did the disciples say to him? What manner of man is this that the winds and seas should obey him? What other, what other worshipped idol has that kind of power? And we could sit here for hours and name all the people, that all of the human beings that they've worshipped down through the centuries. None of them would ever had anyone say, what manner of man is this that the winds and seas would obey him? Nature obeys him. So do we have to worry about global warming? Really? Do we have to worry about spotted owls and giving turtle straws, plastic straws? Think of Luther and his translations of Scripture suffering from loneliness in the tower. 500 years, we're still looking. This is one of my favorite examples also. I you know, try to, you know, there's so many good examples, it's hard to kind of like leaf through them. Did anybody ever heard of the book, Freedom of the Will? You ever heard that? Who wrote it? Anybody remember? Nope. Good guess. Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. What I love about that book, I have not, I've got to be honest, I haven't read the whole book. I've read parts of it, but I haven't read the whole book. And I'm gonna, I want to read the whole book. 
I've read his whole, I've read his whole sermons over and over again on sinners in the hands of an anger. I love it, love it, just love it. Freedom of the will, you have to remember what the setting was. It's always fascinating not to just read the work, but what was the tenor? What was going on around him? The great enlightenment period had arisen. And now, metaphysical philosophy was now the religion and the standard of the day. And there was, there's this one little weak man that was kicked out of his church, writes this book, and it ignites. And basically, he goes into literally a psychiatric look at what happens to the will of mankind. And where the metaphysical, the metaphysical world or the Enlightenment period says, we have the ability to choose anything we want and live and die by it, no matter what we do, it's all relative. That's what it boiled down to. I mean, it's a lot more to it, I know, than that. But that's what it was. God is not enough. That's when, it, when you bring it all down, God is not enough is what they're saying. Jonathan Edwards, he has many years of faithful service in Northampton, he was fired for absolute false allegations all the way down the line. And he winds up in Stockbridge having a ministry with a little group of Indians, which he loved. And he writes Freedom of the Will in Stockbridge. And this is an excerpt from his great work. Let me read some of this to you. So at least you can say you heard some of it. You know, I think that's good. Look at that. Edwards begins the book by defining the will as that by which the mind chooses anything. Therefore, an act of the will is also an act of choice. To act voluntarily is to act electively. Edwards concludes that a man doing as he wills and doing as he pleases are the same thing in common speech. The will's motivation is that motive which, as it stands in the mind, is the strongest. Hence, the will always is as the greatest apparent good is. It always follows the last dictate of the understanding. By understanding, comma, Edwards intends the whole faculty of perception, not merely reason or judgment. Edwards reconciles two seemingly contradictory concepts, necessity and liberty. Necessity, as he defines it, occurs when we cannot help it. It is impossible that it should not be. This is, again, not inconsistent with liberty. Edwards distinguishes between natural and moral inability. The former is when we cannot do it, even if we will. The latter contests, consists in the lack of inclination or motive to induce, excite the will. The will follows two things in the understanding. Number one, the degree of good. And number two, the degree of understanding's view. Due to the natural aversion to the truth of the gospel, the spirit illuminates our understanding and presents the gospel as our chief good. Every act of the will is excited by motive. The way in which motive operates is by biasing the will. Hence, an act of choice or preference is a comparative act, Edwards even remarks. If the mind in its volition can go beyond motive, then it can go without motive. Motives are the previous ground and the reason of the acts of the will. Without them, the motive would not be exerted. What that means is there are things that we have in our will and things that we can do that are outside of what we can control. And God's providence it absolutely encapsulates our will. God's providence comes first, and that's what he's saying. And what that means, we live in an age where people only think God can only see the external. 
He can only see the after effects of what happens from our will. But our will is basically, according to this enlightenment period, and according to basically even most churches today, that our will comes first. And our decisions are substantive, they're good, and God only deals with the mess after the fact. Well, I'm here to tell you, He deals with it before you ever even thought it. His providence knows it perfectly. He has perfect providence, and that's what, that's what Jonathan Edwards here is trying to to illuminate. And what my point is, where this fits into the message this morning is you see Calvin, you see Luther, you see Edwards, all are writing this in the midst of absolute turmoil. There, Calvin has been banished. What would you do today if you went home to your house and there was a note on the front of your house saying, come into this house, you Christian, and your whole family is going to be killed. That's what happened. And he was banished and he had to leave Geneva. He wound up in Zurich and all the way, winds up all the way in Stroudsburg. And that's where he has his church. He was in the middle of a firing storm, just like Paul. Look at Luther in the tower after they had pursued him and he had been actually kidnapped in the woods to save his life. There he is translating the Bible. Here's Jonathan Edwards kicked out of his church after all those years. Two of the reasons he was kicked out of his church is because he did not believe in the Enlightenment period and he did not believe in old, in, in old earth. He didn't believe in theistic evolution. That was really taking root. And this is why he wrote this, part of the reason he wrote this. And these men are in the midst of these trials. And look what, look, at, look what they write. Look what they do. The Lord inspires these words. And this day we still can be reading them. I was watching a question and answer session last night and I love watching them. I learn a lot from them. And the question was, basically, how, how do you, what do you do if you are in the middle of a church and they're preaching the gospel, but they're not preaching the doctrine of election and reformed theology? And all these questions came up about this question. All these answers came, and this gentleman from Scotland, I don't remember his name, he steps in and he says, there are so many good books to read to point you to the verses in Scripture. Read Scripture, read books, and learn about the holiness of God. There's a book called The Holiness of God. Read about it. Learn about it. You're going to find that you're going to be, de- I mean, you're going to be debating a lot of people. And they're going to try to really trip you up and go after your theology and go after your, your views on Christianity. And you're going to find that when you know Scripture, you're going to already have them beat because they have no idea. They have absolutely no platform on what they're talking about. They don't read. They don't have a good understanding of Scripture. And if you do, you've already gotten them licked before they even got into the conversation. And I think these men knew that. So we see here... Um, men who were in trials, we see that uh, according to Edwards, God had an absolute and certain foreknowledge of the free actions of moral agents. He said also, unless the volitions of moral agents are foreseen, all the prophecies of the Bible are uttered without knowing that things foretold. God has an infallible conscience of the act of the will of moral agents. I think that's extremely important. God knows. He knows everything, not just the external, but the internal. He knows what's going in. I'd like, uh, I'd like to, to bring this all together, and I, just, I love this passage, and I'd like for somebody to read it if you could look up. It's a little lengthy, but it'll only take a couple minutes. In the lives of the men we discussed with our primary focus on the Apostle Paul, many times we see that when we don't see ordinary means, God does. And the question this morning is, can God see 
the things we can't see in our lives. Kenny. And as Christians, of course, the nod is always yes. But do we treat it like that? Do we act like that in our daily Christian lives, that we have so much faith in Him that no matter what happens, He knows before we know? Well, let's, someone can read, can we read Psalm 107, verses 12? Let's just go from Psalm 107, 12 to verse 20. Amen. Oh, that men would praise the Lord. He saved them. So if, he, if, if we read this, thank you, Lisa, over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, if you're reading, even, even just if you're studying hard the book of Psalms, which I highly, highly suggest, you can see over and over again the Lord brings, brings all those that are distressed out of, of their distress because He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows it before you even think about it. And so... I can see how Paul, although he may have had some emotional real highs and lows, we see here that he trusted the Lord. Now Paul is going to Rome. Christ that made, made that very clear. You may have not expected to go in chains, but you will go and bear witness of me. And so these 40 plus men try to stand in the way. And we see that they basically were the terrorists of the first century. They meant business and their zeal was a zeal without knowledge, to kill the anointed one, Paul. You don't mess with God's anointed. You don't do that. And they feel that to kill Paul will mean heavy casualties, but they didn't care. They, had, they've got, they got their approval, and what they did was they basically violated their own laws. The nephew gets word of the plot, 470 troops. They're armed, and they take Paul North to Caesarea at about 9 p.m. It says the third hour of the night. And we see that the Roman guard now is basically encapsulating and forming a shell around Paul. The Lord has used the Roman Empire to spare the life of Paul the Apostle. His soldiers, the Roman soldiers were legionnaires. They were elite soldiers for the Roman army. The horsemen were of the garrison's cavalry detachment and the spearmen. They were javelin throwers and were soldiers that were maybe less heavily armed but very, very capable. And Lysias, Claudius Lysias, as we saw earlier, sent almost half of this band of Roman soldiers, about 470, and the question at the beginning of the class was, was he doing it out of love for Paul? No, he was doing it to save his own hide, because he didn't want to look bad if they would have ripped Paul into pieces. It's his job to quell the rebellion and make sure Paul goes to trial. So what does he do? It's such a hotbed, he has to get Paul and take him out of his hands, send him to Felix and dump him on Felix and let Felix handle it. Because getting him out of that area that's all rioting, he, he needed to get him all the way out of there. And so now Felix the governor has it. Lisey. 
Right. He does. And once again, that's great. I love, I love the fact that you recognize that. What does he leave out of the letter? We've, I mean, we've studied this. We've looked at it. What does he leave out? Yes. Right. Felix, the governor, knows who was the one that led the rebellion of the 4,000 Egyptians that came as terrorists and killed a bunch of Jews and Romans. Paul is going to Felix, and Felix knows who the one who was ahead of that coup. Remember, it was Lysias is the one that accused Paul of being that very one, and that's why they wanted him dead. He doesn't put that in the letter. Remember that? Claudius Lysias said he led an Egyptian coup. We should bring him in. The other thing that he doesn't tell Felix in the letter is Paul's father is a Roman. He knows that. He doesn't tell him to let him go. He's, his father is a Roman. And he also doesn't tell him also that Felix himself is violating Roman law to allow Paul to be treated the way he did getting into his hands. He should have done, he should have quelled that rebellion at the beginning, not, af- not afterwards. A lot of things he doesn't say in there. I find that fascinating. It's basically a lot of sins of omission. He did not mention the edict to Paul to have Paul beaten too. He also gave the order to have him beaten. And it was only by the grace of God that that was quite... If he had done that, he'd have been in big trouble. So Paul's, Paul's headed to Antipatris, where, where Paul is taken, was a Roman military post about 40 miles from Jerusalem. And travelers from Jerusalem to Caesarea often rested there. So to, to get from Jerusalem in one night would have been a very exhausting forced march for the foot soldiers. And in closing, God's providence always overrules anticipated sufferings in anyone's life and even in Paul's. Felix was a bloodthirsty man and Paul could have been killed easily. And Paul would now stand before governors and kings, which Christ had said to his disciples. And can someone read Matthew ten eighteen to 20? Pay very close attention to this. This is another one of a perfect prophecy of Christ himself. And Paul's right here now. He's here exactly what Christ said. He says, thank you, Matthew. He says he'll go, that my disciples will go before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. He hit that perfectly. He's three for three. (laughs) They're all there. Isn't that incredible? Well, actually, normally, I'm going to end the class now. This would have actually been the last, normally in, in this church over the years, the last adult Sunday school class for the summer. But where we've now voted here to keep the Sunday school classes going. So we're going to do some different things in the next few weeks. And um, we'll see where the Lord leads us. But we'll be back here bright and early, 10 o'clock next week. And uh, well, I kind of know what's going to go on next Sunday, but I'm going to keep it a surprise. Lisey.
Right. Right. Amen. Right. Amen. And that, you know what, and I did forget to say this, that brings up a great point. If God can see everything, and if the desire in our heart is not met, by the Lord, and things turn out a little differently than we thought, and maybe they maybe turn out even tragically, do we still have the courage in our hearts as Christians to say God could see things I didn't see, and that's for His good? Can we do that? I think that's really a very important part of being a Christian, and when we understand that, even if it goes sour, even if it goes away, we don't want it. The Lord still knows, and He has a reason for it. Let's, uh, let's finish with prayer. I'll ask, um, I'll ask Pastor Olson, could you close us this morning? Thank you.